You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. 11% of American women report one medically confirmed urinary tract infection a year. In the year 2000, $3.5 billion were spent on the evaluation and treatment of cystitis in women. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, your host, and with me today is Dr. Elizabeth Cavalier, a practicing physician and urologist at the Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City and author of A Seat on the Aisle, The Essential Guide to Urological Problems in Women. Welcome, Dr. Cavalier. Thank you. So today we want to discuss some of the new guidelines that are going to alter the traditional treatments of uncomplicated urinary tract infections in reproductive-aged women. Why do you think these new guidelines were needed to be discussed at all? Because there's a lot of confusion on how urinary tract infections are treated, and when a woman presents to her physician, she'll get one answer from one doctor, a different answer from a different doctor, and I think that we need a lot of not only a certain conformity to treatment, but also reduction in the amount of medication that we're offering patients so that we're not over-treating and creating community resistance. This antibiotic resistance is a recurring and significant problem in treating infections, but I think especially in the urogenital area. Can you talk a a little bit about why you think that's happened? I think it happens because we overtreat. A woman with a uncomplicated urinary tract infection will often need one or two doses of an antibiotic, and she instead will get 10 days worth, which means all that extra antibiotic that is now being she's being exposed to is affecting the pathogens in her body, which then get transferred to the community, and so we wind up getting resistances because we're overtreating. Mm-hmm. You know what I think happens a lot in practice, and you may find this as well, is that most bladder infections happen on evenings and weekends when you're off is not open. Do you have any suggestions on how to approach empiric therapy or if we should even be giving empiric therapy for urinary tract infections in these women? I'm a big believer in empiric therapy because women who get infections know when they have one. And if we could get to the infection quickly, then we need to give less antibiotic. So if a woman knows her symptoms, not the first infection, but if she's had recurrent infections, she knows her symptoms, then if she has medicine available, she will medicate herself. And we know from studies that look at self-medication, patients medicate themselves in much, much much lower doses than physicians do. So if we put antibiotics in the hands of patients with an educated uh, sort of focus on how to treat themselves, they will take much less medication. Do you also think the patients who are on prophylactic antibiotics, for example, something like a nitrofurantoin after coitus, are those patients people who you think should be treating themselves as well? I do. The postcoital treatments are somewhat more complicated because if a woman is young and she's having sex five times a week, she's now taking five pills a week, whereas she may not be getting infections that often, although she may be getting one or two a month, it seems like a lot of infections. It doesn't warrant that much medication. So when I counsel women, on how to manage the infections, whether they should do postcoital or they should do self-treatment, it's a matter of looking at how much medication you're going to be taking. Mm-hmm. So if you can take one or two pills a month for symptomatic infections versus a postcoital pill after intercourse five times a week, then they may choose to do the self-medication because they don't need to take 10 days worth of medication every time they get an infection. When you have the patient who has either the initial infection when the office is not open or a recurrent infection and you treat them, how do you follow them? Do you have them come in for what's called a test of cure? If it's their first infection, I recommend and actually insist that they come in first to get a culture, be sure it's an infection, treat them, and then get a follow-up culture so that we know it's an uncomplicated infection. Symptoms, treatment, resolution, no more symptoms. 
if that's not the presentation, then we have to do we have to be more vigilant on how we medicate them. But if it's a very typical uncomplicated infection, I don't recommend pretreatment cultures or post-treatment cultures unless the symptoms don't resolve or they can't tell if they're better or they don't feel better when they're finished with their three days. Then they need a post-treatment culture. Are there any suggestions you can make for us to give patients to reduce the incidence of urinary tract infections in women? That's the number one question I get. The two questions I get are, why do I get these and how do I prevent them? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of prevention recommendations. And there's no really good studies that have looked at the most commonly recommended things like cranberry pills, cranberry juice. There's just really no good data. My recommendation is the healthier the immune system, the fewer the infections. So sleeping, eating well, exercise are the three things that you can do that will reduce your incidence the most. Other than that, there's not a lot else you can do, avoiding a lot after sex, drinking a lot of water, taking various types of over-the-counter treatments probably won't make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's a difference in the incident between different age groups of women? There is. There's clearly a difference. The two main groups of women that get these infections are the women that are beginning their sexual activity in their late teens and early 20s, and then the postmenopausal or perimenopausal population in their 50s to 60s. Also, women who have new relationships, no sex for a while, then they start having intercourse. Women who have sex frequently can have a higher risk of getting infections. These are not sexually transmitted, and they're not sexually transmitted diseases. They come from the patient's own body, but they seem to be much more common in women who have who are sexually active, but not always. So those are the two main groups, so the younger women and then the, the sort of perimenopausal age group. I often wonder if the patients who are even postmenopausal with atrophy have changes in how the flora and the skin around the urethra and the vagina interact with each other, and if that increases their risk as well. Well, that's a very interesting idea because the organisms are different in older women than they are in younger women, and the treatments are different in older women. Younger women, we tend to treat with nitrofurantoin more. It's very effective. Older women don't do well with nitrofurantoin. They do much better with Cipro. So it's a different, they're different organisms. So clearly the vaginal flora change with age and change, the infections change with age. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and today I'm speaking to Dr. Elizabeth Cavalier, and we're discussing the new guidelines and recommendations for treatment of urinary tract infection in non-pregnant women and the challenges that antibiotic resistance have given us. Dr. Kevler, what are the new guidelines? Do you know what they're recommending now? They're recommending short courses, three days of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly which antibiotics, but quinolones at low doses are recommended. So Cipro at 250 is a first line of treatment for uncomplicated urinary tract infections, as well as macrobid, nitrofurantoin. Septra and the sulfa drugs are now third line because of the resistance. Uh, Leviquin is also not a first-line treatment because of the broad spectrum. So those are the recommendations. Short courses, three days, is the recommended treatment. The newest estimates of antibiotic resistance reveal that up to 30% of women who have a urinary tract infection are going to be resistant to amoxicillin and Bactrim. Do you think that this change in the antibiotic usage is going to remedy that problem? I think it's going to present other problems. So right now, the recommendation is for young women to go on nitrofurantoin, 100 milligrams twice a day for three days, and perimenopausal women to go on Cipro 250 twice a day for three days. So that will solve our problem for a short period of time because our resistances to Cipro and Macrobit are between 80 and 90 percent. But we'll have new antibiotics in the next decade, and our recommendations will change accordingly. And when you're seeing a patient, what's your first-line choice of an antibiotic for them if this is their first infection? Macrobit nitrofurantoin is what I mostly like to recommend if I can get away with it because it has so much 
less of an impact on the rest of the body. It doesn't have as many GI problems. It doesn't have the tendonitis concerns that Cipro has. It's also not as broad spectrum, so we can save the quinolones for respiratory and skin problems. Mm -hmm. So I prefer to use Macrobit as often as I can. And you're using the Cipro in the recurrent patients? Recurrent patients, older patients are the two groups that I'll use it, and pyelonephritis, patients who have fevers. We don't have to hospitalize. I can put them on Cipro. Still 250, low-dose Cipro is fine for a pyelonephritis in a young, healthy woman. Do you think there's a role for testing women with asymptomatic bacteria? No. Asymptomatic bacteriuria should not be treated in any woman, young or old. And asymptomatic bacteriuria doesn't mean that she has no urinary symptoms, because if a woman who's 70 has malaise, she's sluggish, she doesn't feel well, and her urine culture is positive, she should be treated. But I'm talking about the women who come in because they're, you know, getting a physical exam yearly, and you do their urine culture, and it comes back with bacteria, should not be treated. 25% of postmenopausal women and 10% of premenopausal women will have positive positive urine cultures with no symptoms. Do you think the people who are likely to get the recurrence are because we're using the wrong antibiotic, or is it a question of noncompliance? No, I don't think either of those things, because then they're not truly recurrent. A recurrent infection means the culture is negative, and then when they're asymptomatic, and then it comes back. And most of the time, the symptoms in the culture correspond, so that's why you don't always need to get cultures to document that infection's gone. If the patient is not symptomatic, then the culture is most likely negative, if that's been their experience in the past. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's noncompliance. Women are compliant with their medicines when they have these infections. They're horribly, horribly symptomatic. I think it's something on a microscopic level that we just don't understand. There's adherence factors in their bladders or something about their cells that allow bacteria to adhere, and they just have a real problem eliminating these. And that's what the vaccines are focusing on. Can you expand a little bit on that? There's a lot of research, especially in Europe, on vaccines to treat recurrent urinary tract infections. And what they are trying to focus on is eliminating the adherence factors on the E. coli, the pili that are on the E. coli that are able to adhere to certain women's cells. They have what's called now an adherence factor that allows the pili to fix onto their bladder walls and then they can't be eliminated so easily. And that's how the vaccines are working. The problem is, of course, that there are thousands of types of E. coli Mm -hmm. and they mutate. So one vaccine will work for a month and then it's gone. It doesn't work anymore. Thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Cavalier, who's been our guest. And we've been discussing the challenges of treatment of urinary tract infections in reproductive age but non-pregnant women. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. You've been listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts, or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But, you know, I saw this commercial for something called Avista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? 
I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.